Welcome to Reinventing Solidarity, a podcast of the journal New Labor Forum and the School of Labor and Urban Studies at the City University of New York. My name is Paula Finn, podcast host and editor of New Labor Forum. Reinventing Solidarity features scholars, activists, and artists on the front lines of movements for social and economic justice. We ask the essential and often provocative questions about race, class, gender, and the role of organized labor and social justice organizations in the work of creating a radically different world, a world with solidarity, equality, and sustainability at its heart. We're really excited today to feature New Labor Forum columnist, Sarah Jaffe, in conversation with New Labor Forum consulting editor and School of Labor and Urban Studies faculty member, Ruth Milkman. They discuss Jaffe's new book, Work Won't Love You Back, How Devotion to Our Jobs Keeps Us Exploited, Exhausted, and Alone. Jaffe suggests there's an increasing trend among today's employers to rely or even insist on workers' emotional dedication to their jobs, the proverbial labor of love. From video game developers to unpaid interns, teachers, flight attendants, care workers of all kinds, Jaffe argues that living up to this expectation exacts a heavy toll. Let's hear what they have to say. I'm delighted to be here with Sarah Jaffe to discuss her new book, Work Won't Love You Back, just published by Bold Type Books, which if I'm not mistaken is an offshoot of The Nation magazine that I'm sure you're all familiar with. Sarah is a wonderful independent journalist who writes on labor and social movement issues. I've known her for a while, and her work has been published widely. She's written for newspapers like the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Guardian, as well as various other outlets, including the American Prospect. She also writes regularly for our own journal at SLU, the New Labor Forum, and for Dissent, where she co-hosts a podcast called, cleverly, Be Labored. The book we're discussing today is actually her second book. I don't know how she has time to do all this writing in the top of a full-time journalist gig, but anyway, she does. The first one appeared in 2016. It's called Necessary Trouble, Americans in Revolt. It analyzed Occupy Wall Street, Black Lives Matter, and the larger wave of protests that followed the financial crash of 2008. So let's start. The book begins rather unconventionally for a book on quote-unquote work with the unpaid work of women in the household. And then you move from there to explore paid domestic labor, housekeepers, nannies, et cetera, home care workers. One thing that struck me in your discussion of paid domestic work, again, in contrast to much of the literature on the topic, at least in sociology, my discipline, where it's kind of defined as this unique occupation where exploitation is uniquely intense and women are the employers. So there's a sort of moral invective against the employers that doesn't seem to happen when people are writing about ordinary other forms of work where the employers are male. Anyway, you, in contrast to that literature, don't define this as a unique occupation, but as rather as one with a lot of shared characteristics with other kinds of low-wage employment. So I would love to hear you elaborate on that. 
Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about an interview I did with A. Jen Poo of the National Domestic Workers Alliance back in 2012, where she said, like, look, the gig economy isn't new. The gig economy is just more and more workers getting the conditions of domestic workers. Thinking of it that way and understanding that, like, there have always been workers who are carved out of labor law in this country, right? And they have been, traditionally, they have been Black workers, they have been women workers, they have been immigrant workers. You know, that carve-out is based in racism and sexism, and it will always sort of tend to grow. So whatever, whichever workers we sort of create, like, special cases for being the most exploitable, capital is going to go there, whether they literally pack up, close the factory down in Indiana and move it to Mexico or Bangladesh or wherever, or whether they just find more ways to grow those carve-outs because like capital is going to seek the lowest labor cost because this is how capitalism works. And that is true and, and sort of also ends up being true if you are an employer of a domestic worker who is also going to probably end up seeking the lowest labor costs. So all of this has like much more in common than we often want to think. And like Ruth and I were just talking the other day because I was doing a story on worker centers and we're talking particularly about the way that a lot of organized labor didn't understand immigrant workers for a long time and sort of were, you know, had this idea that they were the problem rather than the problem being having accepted for however many decades, centuries, labor law that writes certain people out of it, not based on anything about the work, but based on who those workers are. And this is absolutely true of women's work writ large. And this is why teachers right now are just getting the crap beaten out of them in, you know, not just the mainstream newspapers, but even in magazines like The Nation, people have written things like scolding teachers needing to get back to, to the classroom. It's really frustrating. Because we expect women to do their work, not for the money, but for love. And if they love the work, then therefore they should be willing to sacrifice whatever it takes. And that means increasingly long hours. It means buying your kids food and clothing out of your own pocket. It means working in crumbling school buildings without toilet paper and soap in the bathrooms. And now it requires literally going to get coronavirus and die. And we just somehow think that that's okay. And then also that these teachers can solve the problems of a pandemic by going back to the classroom when in fact, if they go back to the classroom without any sort of safety precautions, what they're going to do is make the pandemic worse. And then probably also get blamed for that because we love to blame teachers for everything because we love to blame women for everything. <laughs> so yeah, so I, I would say you can't talk about work without talking about gender and race rather than the people who would like to say, if you talk about gender and race, when you're talking about work, you're talking, you're, you're doing the wrong thing. So speaking of teachers, you point out you have a whole chapter on teachers in the book, mm -hmm. and you note there that historically teaching was socially constructed as a kind of extension of, of mothering, of women's caring work in the home, which of course helps account for why it's a very underpaid profession since it's still female dominated, although, well, not as much as in the past. But you also discuss in the book the ways in which teachers have emerged recently, especially in 2018 on the leading edge of labor militancy in the United States. And I wonder if you could discuss to what extent their organizing also reflects the narrative of care that characterizes the work culture of teachers. Yeah, the fun thing about doing that chapter was I'd already written about teachers in, in my first book. I wrote about the Chicago teacher strike there. And in this one, I really went sort of deep down the rabbit hole of just books on the histories of teachers unions 
and found that so many times sort of over again, this, this type of organizing would occur and then sort of get pushed down or squashed. And that there's always been this tension between sort of social movement unionism and professionalism within teachers unions. And that, so you would look back at, at the beginnings of what became the Chicago Teachers Union a hundred and some odd years ago, where you had women teachers who were organizing with their community because they didn't have anything called collective bargaining rights. Um, they were doing things like researching who in the city didn't pay their taxes so that they could find more money for the schools. And they were, you know, aligning themselves with the labor movement, but also with other women workers specifically. And then that sort of gets squashed because when you form the National American Federation of Teachers, a man clearly needs to be in charge of it because, you know, it's 19 whatever and men are in charge, even though brilliant organizers like Margaret Haley sort of get written out of the story. And then again, in the history of New York's teachers union, which was the communist led teachers union, again, you find teachers organizing in the community community with black and brown parents writing culturally relevant curricula. Hi, before we called it ethnic studies, they were doing it. And that when they were getting, you know, blacklisted and red baited out of the classroom, those parents fought for them. What does that sound like? It sounds like Chicago in 2012. And so, you know, this is this tradition that that continues and then it gets sort of squashed down by the collective bargaining model. And then you have fun things like Ocean Hill Brownsville, which I can elaborate on if anybody really wants to go to that depressing moment. You get this sort of professional narrative of teachers getting pitted against, in that case, black and brown parents who are saying, do you care about our students? And so when teachers unions have been successful, it has been because they have demonstrated that kind of care for the parents and the students, and then brought that into a sort of reciprocal relationship, right? I was tweeting this morning about solidarity having to be a relationship. It's not just a one-sided thing. So if you are working in solidarity with the parents, that means that they also show up for you. And we're seeing that because despite all of these stupid articles blaming teachers for everything right now, polls show that parents, particularly black and brown parents, are still siding with the teachers and do not want their kids pushed back into school until it's actually safe. So, you know, whatever you write in the New York Times, unless, you know, somebody writes something good about it in the New York Times, the parents who actually feel some solidarity from their teachers are, you know, willing to extend that back. And that kind of relationship has really worked to subvert this top-down ed reform narrative that teachers just don't care and they're lazy and they're taking advantage of whatever. And they are basically, you know, the modern welfare queen. Because once again, if we leave the welfare queen story out of anything, we miss everything. One of the bright spots in the labor firmament, as we all know, it's uh, there aren't a lot of those, but it has been nurses unions, yeah. which have expanded and been quite militant, partly in response to what you just described. So that's another, besides teachers, that's another. It's, it's mm -hmm. interesting that these so-called semi-professions that are historically mm -hmm. and today female dominated have become yeah. the centers of women's organizing and very different from the traditional labor movement, which at least the iconography is all about blue collar male workers. Yeah. Here we have college educated women sort right. of leading the charge. And I think not entirely absent from that. I, don't, I wonder what you think about this is gender hierarchies mm -hmm. within especially medicine where nurses yeah. do 99% of the work and doctors get 99% of the credit kind of thing. And, yep. you know, that whole dynamic combined with application of industrial management style lean production or whatever to hospitals, you know, is an explosive combination. That's yeah. my own view of it anyway. Oh, absolutely. 
when I was working on the piece for The Nation, I talked to Suzanne Gordon, who's done written a million books about healthcare. And we actually met because I was reporting on the VA. And then I was like, oh, but you've also written about nurses. Let's talk about your, your nurse work. And she was like, you know, everybody talks about nursing like it's heart work, but it's actually really difficult and complicated brain work. And it doesn't get discussed as such. It gets discussed as if you just sort of go in and hold the patient's hand and not to discount the caring part of nursing, which is really, really important. But also it's diagnostic work, it's, it's treatment work, it's, it's making all of these decisions because actually you don't see your doctor for most of the day, especially in American healthcare. I've been spending a bunch of time in the UK lately, so like the differences between the NHS system and our completely screwed up system are really interesting because the doctors aren't so individualized there. The fact that nurses have been, National Nurses United, California Nurses Association, have been the face of the fight for single payer healthcare in this country for the last however long, it's been my entire time reporting on it, right? Nurses have been advocating for it and that they have been out in front on sort of progressive policy and endorsing Bernie Sanders and things like that and sort of pushing the labor movement on these issues that often, you know, again, some of the labor movement doesn't want single-payer healthcare because they're invested in the collectively bargained healthcare plans that they have, which are dying out. <laughs> so it's been fascinating to watch that push. And also, you know, again, the tensions within organized labor where like people don't necessarily want to yield to the leadership of these 75 or 76% of teachers are still women and 90 or 91% of nurses are still women. So that's, that's the numbers we're talking about, right? was Arlie Russell Hochschild's The Managed Heart on your mind when you wrote your book and you do cite yes. Hochschild. And I, I think it's particularly relevant to the chapter. Well, it's relevant throughout maybe, but Hochschild is the one who first sort of laid out the idea of emotional labor, which has now entered the kind of popular lexicon, but yeah. that book is the kind of origin of it. In your chapter on retail, yes. retail is now the the largest sector, what depends how you count, but in right. the United States and in terms of employment. And again, it's female dominated, underpaid and the brick and mortar version of it, which of course is under attack yeah. in various ways right now does involve a lot of emotional labor. Could you just talk about that maybe in connection to, with the influence of Hochschild? The way that I think of emotional labor and to sort of differentiate it is that it's about managing your feelings to produce a feeling in someone else. So it's about production. It's just about production of an emotional state that we have a really hard time putting a number value on. So the fact that those feelings do create surplus value is, I would assume, not you know, arguable. They find that valuable enough to pay somebody what little Walmart pays anybody to do that. And any, but there's actually a really wonderful article that I've been citing a lot by Polly Smith at Tribune magazine talking about being a retail worker during the pandemic and the extra load of emotional labor when you are the only person that some customer has maybe seen all week. And so, you know, she was writing about elderly people coming into the store where she worked and just wanting to chat because they're alone and they're not trying not to go out very much because of course the risk of getting COVID. And so you know, suddenly you have not only the burden of you have to smile and, and be nice to people no matter what they say to you, but then you're also very, very aware that you might be the only human this person has interacted with all week in a couple of weeks. And this is something I've heard from several retail workers, pharmacy workers, grocery workers during the pandemic is that extra sort of people really need us right now in a way that, you know, this whole essential worker framework is it gets at, but doesn't get at that particular component of what it takes 
to you to control your feelings, to smile. I was joking yesterday that I'd been on so many Zoom calls that like my face muscles actually hurt from smiling. And it reminded me of when I used to wait tables because (laughs) my face muscles would often hurt from smiling. And the way that it gets flattened, I find frustrating because it it ends up doing that thing that we talked about in the first question that Ruth asked, where, where we turn love into work. The way that people are like, Venmo me for answering your question. That's not what that's not good. We don't want to go into a world of microtransactions for every caring interaction we have. That's not a good thing. Not That's not the solution to this problem, right? Whatever the problem is, is it social media? Is that Facebook is work? We can talk about that if we want to. <laughs> we talk about, you know, clicking like on Facebook is a micro labor transaction. Don't at me. But we don't want everything to be understood as labor. Actually, what I really, really want at the end of the day is is to claim more time away from work by being clear about what is work. And so, you know, you, you are not under any obligation to be friends with everybody, but making every emotional interaction into a transaction doesn't seem like a great way to claim space away from work and, and potentially think about, you know, liberating space from capitalism. So far, we've talked entirely about female-dominated occupations in this conversation, and the book is dominated by that, too, for reasons you've already mentioned. But what about male workers? Are they also expected to love their jobs in the same way? You know, could you just talk yeah. about that side of it a little bit? The way that the creative worker is sort of gendered masculine, right? That the genius is actually a term that means something like male spirit of a family originally, which I think is hilarious. So the way that tech workers now is sort of this, this maybe the ideal type male worker of 2021 is the computer programmer. Although that is also work that started out being women's work. And then when men realized it was going to become prestigious work, they sort of took it over and and changed the narrative about it very deliberately in ways that are really fun to read about. Frustrating, but fun to read about. I always think of of something that Bethany Morton wrote on this front, that the real narrative is not that we, of the last, you know, few decades, is not that we all get to be doing like high-powered knowledge work, but actually that men get to be feminized clerks. So like the spread of feminized work means that we all get put in that feminized service position more often than not. And then on the flip side of that, if you're in the sort of tech job, which, you know, for now maintains some level of prestige, although they're working very hard on destroying that. Mark Zuckerberg isn't investing in immigration reform advocacy because he's nice and wants to have more immigrants because he's a nice person. It's because he wants to drive down the wages for the people that he employs. Um, so, you know, there's, there is an, all of the learn to code, learn to code coding boot camps are not done out of the goodness of anyone's heart. They're done to try to drive down wages for coding so that it is no longer a prestigious occupation, but that it's actually just another blue collar field. So that said, you know, the, the, sort of story in a lot of these tech workplaces, and I profile video game programmers for that chapter, is that you're, the workplace is sort of designed around doing everything for you that you might otherwise do at home. 
So they'll feed you and there's maybe nap pods and um, massage and you can, you know, go to a doctor on the Google campus or whatever. Those are all designed to sort of keep you at work forever and make you more invested and your work is really cool. And so you never go home. So, you know, some of these games programmers that I talked to were like, yeah, there are like stretches of my life where I just went to work, stayed at work till like 10 o'clock at night, ate dinner at work because they would order you takeout if you stayed past seven o'clock or whatever, and then go home, go to sleep wake up in the morning and go back to work. What solutions do you envision for leaders of community organizing groups that have a radical mission but get stuck in the capitalist trap, exploiting community organizers, particularly women of color? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's a huge problem. Um, in the nonprofit chapter, I, I profile a worker who was at a Planned Parenthood in the Rocky Mountains and was part of the union drive there. And they, you know, were very disappointed when Planned Parenthood of the Rocky Mountains union busted them. And this is is not unfortunately an uncommon thing to hear in otherwise progressive organizations and progressive media. Hi, I have lived through this. Where you are told essentially that you know you're hurting the cause if you make any demands for yourself in a way that is not dissimilar to the way that teachers are told that they're hurting the cause if they make any demands for themselves if you're in a community organization and you are saying i need a raise because i can't afford to live in new york chicago los angeles atlanta whatever on what you're paying me then you are told essentially that you are taking money out of the you know programs for your constituents your members and the problem with that is if we follow that to its actual conclusion, right, and you don't have decent pay at these institutions, then what you end up with is kind of a Teach for America model where you get people who come from money, who do it for a couple of years until they're burned out and move on, and then you just replace them. Rather than having community organizations that can actually be staffed by the communities that they come from who, you know, if they, if people went to college from working class communities, they're going to be carrying more debt. They are going to maybe have family members that they're supporting. They're going to come in with all of these other needs that are different from somebody who went to college, had it paid for, and is now sort of doing their charity work. And this framework of, of charity is sort of ends up being inevitably unequal and you know we're stuck with existing under capitalism. So of course the the real solution to all of this is destroy the capitalist mode of production. But within it, you know, I, I unionize your community org seriously. Give the workers who are doing the work a say in what gets done. And if you're worried about that being harmful to your members, then hire your staff from your membership. And that way you're continuing to listen to the people that you serve when they are also your employees. And of course, what happened after the sort of first big round of Black Lives Matter protests in places like Ferguson is that the big foundations tossed some money at these organizations, many of which had existed, like the Organization for Black Struggle had been around for 25 years or something. And this was the first time they had money to hire paid staffers. But then, you know, too often the foundations change their minds, get bored, move on to the next thing. And the young black protesters who got hired by these organizations for the first time then lose their job. And then, you know, then we have another upwell of Black Lives Matter. And then again, everybody's like, oh, wait, black people, we should pay attention to that. And it just annoys the ever loving hell out of me, frankly. <laughs> so, you know, this is a it's a problem that that, you know, funders in part create but we don't solve it by expecting people to endlessly do more with less. 
what recommendations would you have for how labor activists can bring these understandings, that is the understandings of your, that you give us in the book, into their day-to-day -day union workplace political work, especially the need to highlight excessive individualism? The thing that I would say about this sort of excessive individualism and the story I get to go back to working on today after we get off this call is about a union in the podcasting world. And they are talking about the way that you end up feeling competitive for raises and things like that. And so the union is actually a way to sort of not have to compete in that way. And also they, like so many of the workers that I talked to, which is why I wrote this book, do say like, we love our job and we love working here and we want to make it better. If we can think about that as not a thing that you have to like beat out of people that you're organizing with, but actually say, okay, how do we, how does that actually become a strategic part of this campaign? The way that the Chicago teachers said, you know, our working conditions are our students' learning conditions. How do, how do we sort of use that when organizing in all of these different ways and different frameworks. So how is it useful to media workers to say, we love our jobs and we want to make them better and more equitable and more diverse? How do art museum workers who have been organizing like crazy lately, who also love what they do and the institution that they work for often, and also still want to make it better? Uh, I think there are, are a lot of ways that this can actually be usefully turned against the company, shall we say, um, in, you know, this, this, I mean, sometimes it's just obvious bullshit, like at Amazon, where they're like, the workers love Prime Day, it's great to work twice as hard as usual. That's obviously crap, right? When you're, you know, organizing in media or the arts or caring work, it can be a lot more true that we do love our work. So how to not sort of get caught in that trap that like, therefore I love my work. Therefore it is the most important thing for me to be individually successful. And I mean, I'm literally sitting here having written a book and being a freelancer to think about the way forward in all of this is not something we can do individually. And like when this first, first came out then the book first launched in January, which was a while ago, people were asking me a lot, like what individual advice do you have for people? And I was like, join a union. And they were like, but individually, and I was like, no, no, no. The point is that you can't solve it individually. And that was really hard for some people to hear and probably not at all on this call, which is great. Because yeah, sort of the entire point of talking about this is like a historical phenomenon and as one that is, you know, true over a wide variety of types of work is to say that like, it is very much not an individual problem, but it is a very, very much common problem that we have to surmount in order to think about how to, change the way we work and the way we live and get some time back away from that work. Speaking of Amazon, of course, right now there's a union election underway in one of those warehouses, a giant one in outside Birmingham, Alabama, which we don't know how it's going to come out, but even President Biden has voiced his support for collective bargaining in this context. And that, of course, is a revival of Basically, it's very similar to factory work, the work that they do in those warehouses. It's yeah. even though it's, you know, high tech in some other ways, both in terms of the scanning that goes on in the factory. So that does raise a, a challenge of how we synthesize or what's the synergy, if any, between the kind of organizing among those highly educated sectors and old fashioned blue collar work, which is not dead. And here and there, we do see efforts to, you know, but in a very different idiom, if you will, then. So I'm, I wonder if you could discuss that sort of future of the labor movement and how we can 
bridge these gaps between old and new worlds yeah. of work. Yeah, I was saying that I've been talking to some Amazon workers and who work in one of those roboticized warehouses and they sound just like I'm I'm reading Detroit I do mind dying over again, right? I'm just hearing the same stories of automation and who gets put in the place of dealing with these machines and I was talking to a man who works in the warehouse outside of Minneapolis and he's an he's a Somali immigrant who organizes with the Owood Center and you know, he's just saying like this is not the system in Amazon is not designed for like human bodies. He's like, we have to compete with machines. We're running after machines all day and we're tracked so that if you, you know, take time away from packing to go to the bathroom, then the the scanner that tracks you puts you basically in the hole and you have to work extra hard when you get back to get back up to the time on task that you're supposed to have. It's just the same questions of the speed up, right? That the robots are not brought in to make the worker's job faster or better. They're brought in to make or make it faster, but not better. And what ends up happening is workers are breaking their bodies to move faster. And Amazon warehouses have a higher rate of injury. And especially the, the warehouses that have more robots have more injuries than the average warehouse. So, you know, the high techness of it is, is not a new kind of high tech. It's the same old kind of high tech, high tech right? I always love that like the Tesla factory is in the old Numi factory. So, right, it's like the place where you sort of brought in that Japanese production. And now it's like where Tesla is. And when the workers at Tesla wanted a union, Elon Musk's like, we'll build a roller coaster. And they're like, union? Union. <laughs> because you can't actually take those tactics from the white collar work and just like plop them in and expect them to, you know, work on the blue collar workers in the same way. But what's interesting is like the, the white collar workers in a lot of these tech companies started organizing a lot of them around Trump, right? So Google was organizing against Project Maven. They're organizing against surveillance. They're organizing against the tech they're making being used to deport people. One of the, it's not surprising that one of the biggest hotbeds of the Google union is the ethical AI department where they've been firing people who said your, your AI isn't ethical. The people who are thinking the most about how this tech is going to affect the real world are also the ones who are leading the turnaround and going like, hey, actually our working conditions also suck. And actually also the way we can have the most power to affect what Project Maven does is by organizing as workers to say, we won't do it. The new and the old interact in that way in a really interesting way. And it is that thing again of those, you know, sort of would be white collar workers realizing that at the end of the day, you're still workers and Google is still making a ridiculous, ludicrous amount of money off of the work that you do. And you don't get a say in what that tech will be used for. The old uh, stories aren't dead. And I think it's, it's really useful and important to know that history so you can hear those echoes, whether it's the communist teachers union being echoed in today's teachers unions or the, you know, the revolutionary black workers in, in Detroit's critique of automation being relevant to Amazon workers in 2021. But also we're going to have to figure out some new things. So streaming on Twitch is, is a good start. Um, and how do we sort of understand what of the new tactics is, is useful and what of the new tactics is just sort of screaming into a void? That's going to be the test. Thank you so much, Sarah, taking the time to share her thoughts with us. And the book is available wherever books are sold. I particularly recommend Bookshop if you want to patronize independent bookstores. Thank you. Engagement with issues like these forms the basis of the classroom experience at the School of Labor and Urban Studies, 
where our preeminent faculty and engaged and diverse student body grapple with the most pressing challenges confronting organized labor and working class communities. For more information about the school, visit slu.cuny.edu. To learn more about the podcast and listen to other episodes, visit slu.cuny.edu slash podcast. And to subscribe to New Labor Forum or sign up for our free monthly newsletter, visit newlaborforum.cuny.edu. Thank you.